Welcome to Final Examination, a podcast about the end of the world. I'm Paul Musgrave, a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. During the fall 2020 semester, four teams of students have researched, reported, and produced stories about how people have faced the end of the world right here in Massachusetts. In this episode, Trevor Stearns brings us to Nantucket to take a deep dive into the whaling industry. The episode explores the island's surprisingly diverse racial history and asks, how did the collapse of whaling end a world of opportunity for black whalers? High on the cliff tops of Norfolk's Green Isle, the women and children stand watching the while. Far down below, the whale boatmen row, as after the humpback, the Norfolk men go. Row, my love, row, and bring back to me the king of the ocean, the prize of the sea. In the mid-1800s, New Bedford, Massachusetts was the richest city in the world, all because it had the biggest whaling port in the United States. And I'd venture to guess if you're not from Massachusetts, and even if you are, you've probably never heard of New Bedford. Ships left cities like New Bedford and Nantucket daily, ready to roam the seas in search of their prey. Voyages lasted months or even years, and life on board was monotonous and dangerous. Sailors could go weeks without catching anything, but once a lookout spotted a distant water spout, chaos followed. Once the boat got close enough, the harpooner stabbed the whale with a sharp rod attached to the ship, and for the next few hours, the ship and everyone on board were at the mercy of the whale, often called a Nantucket sleigh ride. Once the whale finally died, the crew began a new task, towing the whale, cutting up the useful parts, loading it all on board, and cleaning it up. That was the real whaling industry in all its glory, a lucrative, treacherous, and morally questionable business. Whaling was brutal and dangerous, but it also marks one of mankind's greatest adventures. In Nantucket, Massachusetts, a small island 50 miles off the coast of New Bedford, the whaling industry took on a life of its own. In the 17th century, the English arrived, claimed Nantucket, and thus began the island's whaling legacy. With European domination of the island, you might be surprised to hear that during times of slavery, civil war, and even national racial strife, Nantucket was surprisingly racially inclusive. Even while slavery persisted on the mainland, black people often saw more success here than anywhere else in the country. Some of the biggest anti-slavery causes have roots on this very island. This is a story about a man, a whale, and the end of a world, but it's not the one you're thinking of. This is the story of Absalom Boston, the man who became the first black whaling captain to lead an all-black crew, and the man who founded one of the first black institutions in the United States. Not every black person in Nantucket was similarly successful, but his life and the things he accomplished serve as an emblem of what Nantucket was. The work was hard and often gross, but at the end of the day, a sailor was measured by his skill and not his skin color, even if this wasn't really the case on land. And while this is Absalom's story, it's also a story about progress and a future that could have been. While I'm almost confident that you've never heard of him, I hope this podcast gives you some insight into the unknown. I'm your host, Trevor Stearns. Before we begin, I should mention, as we go along, be sure to take a chance to really listen to the song played throughout the podcast. It's called Norfolk Whalers, and it was written by a man named David Coffin. He's actually related to the original owner of the island, Tristam Coffin, who's said to have purchased Nantucket for 30 pounds and two beaver hats. And while it's a really good song about whaling, it also represents something much bigger and more confusing. 
This story of unique diversity and the conclusions we can all draw from it often conflict with one another, and we're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us on this voyage, and welcome to our podcast, A Man, A Whale, and the End of a World. The men in the boat strain hard at the oars As they head for the whales and away from the shore High in the bow the harpoon man stands The steel-shafted harpoon held tight in his hands The success of a black man like Absalom Boston as a whaler, innkeeper, captain, and community member may seem a bit weird to us today when thinking about the 19th century. This was a time when the United States was still holding on to slavery, but it's important to know that the foundations for black success on Nantucket were laid decades before Absalom's life began. The Quakers, officially known as the Society of Friends, were integral to Nantucket's history in the context of both slavery and abolition. These days we remember the Quakers as abolitionists, but only later on did they become just that. The Quakers were some of Nantucket's first settlers, and many of them owned slaves. People like Stephen Hussey, who left one, quote, African each to his wife, daughter, and son in 1718. Black people were often listed in estate inventories alongside things like household goods, livestock, and tools. But as time went on, some Quakers became vocal about their opposition to slavery. Elihu Coleman, a Nantucketer and a Quaker, wrote one of the very first American publications denouncing slavery in 1730. He claimed the practice of making slaves out of men was, quote, contrary to the dispensation of the law and time of the gospel and very opposite both grace and nature. The abolition movement among the Quakers began to gain traction, and by the 1750s, the group as a whole formally denounced slavery. Before Absalom Boston was born, his family already had a large presence on the island and was directly involved in the end of slavery on Nantucket as a whole. In 1770, Absalom Boston's uncle, Prince Boston, a slave, was sent to work on the whale ship The Friendship by his master, William Swain. When Swain tried to seize Prince's share of the profits, Prince sued his master for lost wages, and after a long, drawn-out legal battle, he won the case. Prince Boston was the first slave on Nantucket to successfully sue for his freedom, and his case effectively ended slavery for everyone on Nantucket in 1773. Prince Boston's success in the Nantucket courts paved the way for the success of his nephew Absalom and cemented the Boston family legacy on the island. As black people on the island gained their freedom, the whaling industry was there to welcome them. Whaling was brutal and challenging, but it provided black workers with freedoms they had been denied in slavery. Things like the ability to travel, make money, and create real lives for themselves. As black workers found their place in the whaling industry, they began to make their mark on the island outside of the confines of slavery. About one in four whalers were people of color. At the height of whaling, the industry employed around 700 black men as harpooners or officers on board whale ships. Out of the shift towards abolition and equality on Nantucket came the life of Absalom Boston. He was born in 1775, just five years after his uncle had effectively ended slavery on the island. Absalom was the son of a former slave, and in his youth he joined the whaling industry, following in the footsteps of his uncle. Absalom set sail on his first voyage at the age of 15, and over the years he saved his wages. When he was 20 years old, he was able to purchase property on the island, and later he'd obtain a license to open an inn. What Absalom Boston is perhaps most well known for, though, are his whaling achievements later in life. Absalom Boston became Captain Boston in 1822, when he set sail at the helm of his ship, the Industry, with an all-black crew. Captain Boston was a wealthy man, but his wealth was relative. Compared to other black Nantucketers, Absalom was pretty well off, but compared to the white merchant population, he didn't even come close to the amount of money that they had. Nantucket was an accepting place, but even the most successful black residents couldn't compete with their white counterparts. 
Absalom Boston's story lacks a lot of the specifics. The only explanation that we really have as to why he found such great success compared to other black Nantucketers is hard work and a lot of luck. Boston came from a well-known family on the island and could also read and write, which may have helped him advance in his dealings in the business world. Throughout this podcast, you'll be hearing from Dr. Francis Cartoonan, a linguist, historian, and Nantucket resident who's published 11 different books on the island's history. Dr. Cartoonan will be sharing her expertise on the experience of black Nantucketers. It was a hazardous, hazardous industry, and a man was measured by his skill and not by his skin color. So it was a place where um, skill, talent, bravery was rewarded. It was miserable, miserable work, but you received recognition for what you uh, brought to it. Maybe Absalom was particularly skilled, hardworking, or even just lucky. In any case, it's not really for us to say. What we can say is that Absalom Boston was a key asset to the whaling industry and to Nantucket's black community as a whole. The black community on Nantucket became so prominent by the 1800s that they created their own colony on the island, named New Guinea, an homage to the African country where many black people were first taken as slaves. New Guinea functioned as an independent community, with its own school, windmills, and graveyard. It was not an integrated community, though. It had its own borders, and its separation from Nantucket town was clear. It's important to know that while the whaling industry integrated much of the black population into the workforce, racial divide was still evident on the land. Racism and prejudice were present on Nantucket, even with the multiracial backdrop of the whaling industry. Absalom Boston was a community leader in New Guinea. He and other black Nantucketers often bought and sold land amongst each other and occasionally with the white population. Well-off black Nantucketers like Absalom even provided loans to their community members who wanted property of their own, thoroughly establishing themselves in the island's economy. These were the direct benefits of whaling. The long voyages and horrendous conditions provided black residents on this tiny island a sense of upward mobility found in very few places in the country at the time. While Absalom Boston found success at sea, he truly had a visible impact on the community of New Guinea as a whole. He was also the co-founder of the African Meeting House in New Guinea during the 1830s. The Meeting House was constructed by and for black residents on the island as one of the first black institutions in the country. The function of the building has varied widely over time, it acted as a schoolhouse, a social center, and later a church. Black Nantucketers would convene in the meeting house together to worship, and attend classes and generally just be together. The space was also open to formerly enslaved people, Native Americans, Quakers, educators, abolitionists. Really just anyone who wanted to be in a community with others that didn't necessarily belong in Nantucket. The African meeting house served as the cultural epicenter of New Guinea, a place black residents could really take ownership of. Another important place on the island was the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was originally founded as a membership-only institution dominated by white Nantucketers. But the audience broadened around 1840, when formerly enslaved abolitionist Frederick Douglass made his first public speech to an integrated audience during an anti-slavery convention. An eyewitness account claimed that Douglass spoke with such, quote, intellectual power, wisdom, and wit that all those present were astonished. For a time, the Athenaeum was a place for landmark events like the Frederick Douglass speech. But unfortunately, in 1842, heightened national debate about abolition forced the Athenaeum to shut their doors to black Nantucketers and abolitionists alike for two years. This meant they needed a new place, and they settled on the space above abolitionist Obed Barney's store. The space doubled as a reading room and free anti-slavery library for black Nantucketers and their allies. It wasn't just the whaling industry's diversity that made Nantucket different. It was places like Barney's store in the early days of the Athenaeum, where pockets of resistance against the evils of slavery emerged. Nantucket was not only a place of bustling industry, it was a place for intellectuals, those who believed in change. 
Before starting this research, I knew absolutely none of this history. An industry dominated by successful black workers existing in the same time and place as slavery isn't really something you'd expect. I don't know about you, but this isn't the Nantucket that I know. Today, Nantucket is over 80% white, with a median income in the six figures. The island is a well-known vacation spot, the kind of place where well-off families vacation in the summertime. Nantucket today is a place filled with bike trails, beaches, and nice restaurants. So it's safe to say blood and whale blubber no longer line the streets. When I think of Nantucket, I think of the stereotypical things like, you know, big hooks, those goofy looking yellow rain caps, and maybe a lobster trap or two. Nobody's actively trying to hide all this history, but most people don't know anything about it. A lot of us at least know the plot for Moby Dick, you know, the search for meaning. And the meaning here is confusing. Black history might have looked a lot different had whaling never disappeared because the history that was unfolding in Nantucket definitely looked a lot different compared to other places in the country. This podcast is supported by Alitas Angels, a 501c3 nonprofit that provides clothing to asylum-seeking children and their families. To learn more about Alitas Angels and support their mission, please visit alitasangels.com. That's A-L-I-T-A-S angels.com. This podcast is supported by data scientist Lindsay Pettingill, who wants everyone to know they should hang in there, find people that believe in them, and speak truth to power. It's ship your oars, lads, and quiet as you go. The harpoon sinks deep and the blood starts to flow. Hellfire and fury break out on the waves. One flick of his tail would mean watery grave. Throughout this podcast, we've been talking about the success of the black community on Nantucket, but it's important to know that this prosperity did have a time limit. Ralph Waldo Emerson once called the island, quote, the nation of Nantucket, and that certainly rings true once you explore evidence of heightened racial tension around the country as the U.S. inched closer to the Civil War. As we've mentioned, race relations on Nantucket were definitely not perfect, but for the most part, black residents were safe and generally welcomed on the island. By the early 1800s, leaving Nantucket Island was a big risk for black sailors. In 1821, one year before Absalom Boston's first voyage, the U.S. Attorney General ruled that free black people in Virginia were not citizens of the United States, according to their interpretation of the Constitution at the time. This ruling, coupled with the pro-slavery attitudes that persisted at the time, made already life-threatening whaling voyages even more dangerous. This was around the time Absalom Boston captained his first voyage in 1822. The six-month voyage only yielded 70 barrels of whale oil, which wasn't much considering that some voyages yielded hundreds of barrels, but the safe return of its crew members was considered a success. After this initial voyage, however, Boston retired because of increased racial tension in the United States. Absalom's concerns were well-founded. To go to the South was to risk being captured. Here's Dr. Gartunin discussing what often awaited black sailors on shore. The southern states began to have laws that when a northern ship with black crew members put into the ports, first of all, the law was that the black people could not get off. And then they went even further and said the black people had to get off and be imprisoned until they were put back on the ship when it left. But while they were imprisoned on shore, they were in great danger, actually, of being just sold off into slavery. Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia in August of 1831 caused a massive panic in the South. Turner and six of his men marched into the house of their master, killing everyone in their sleep. They continued on, killing all of the white people that they encountered, and the rebellion eventually grew to more than 40 slaves. 
After almost 10 days, the rebellion scattered and became disorganized, ultimately leading to its downfall and the eventual capture and execution of Nat Turner. Turner's rebellion was the only effective and sustained slave rebellion, disrupting all previously held beliefs that slaves were happy with their lives and that they'd never undertake a violent means to freedom. Pro-slavery ideologies in the South were strengthened, and the rebellion set in motion legislation that further stripped black people of their rights after the state legislature of Virginia decided they'd refuse abolition and continue practicing oppressive policies against both slaves and freed black people. While black Nantucketers were free on the island, they were in constant and immediate danger in slaveholding states. This constant danger had a lot of implications for black sailors in Nantucket. Their personal freedoms, livelihoods, and basically everything else they'd worked for could be taken away. Even through this national turmoil, Absalom Boston lived an extraordinary life. He became an abolitionist and found success as a shop owner and an innkeeper. He worked on behalf of the island's black community, fighting for the integration of schools on Nantucket before his death in 1855. But unfortunately, his success died with him. Even though he died a wealthy and respected man, the decline of the whaling industry left his family with almost nothing. Absalom Boston's children buried him in a segregated cemetery, and it's speculated that there was not enough money in his trust to pay for a headstone. Soon after Boston's death, Nantucket saw the end of a world. There were massive declines in the number of black sailors because of a growing fear from Southerners that free black people might disrupt the docile nature of slaves. There was always the possibility that black sailors traveling to Southern ports would share anti-slavery pamphlets with slaves and promote their radical ideas. There was also increased policing of black sailors under the law, and slave catchers, emboldened by the Fugitive Slave Act, made frequent visits to the island looking for escapees. Now, black Nantucketers lacked safety even on the island that they called home. And as the Civil War rapidly approached, the success whaling could provide black sailors shifted further out of reach. According to Dr. Cartoonan, the rules and conditions on whaling ships became much more brutal for black sailors once the Quakers began to phase out of the whaling industry in the mid-1800s. To make matters worse, whaling as a whole began to decline. While Americans once relied on whale oil to light their lamps, when crude oil was discovered in Pennsylvania in 1859, the nation moved on from whale products and turned toward newer energy sources like kerosene, petroleum, and other fossil fuels. The whaling industry was no longer necessary, and neither was Nantucket's diverse labor force. Black sailors were forced to turn their attention away from the sea and focused on finding work on land, but nothing ever held the promise of riches in the way that whaling once had. Many of these sailors left the island after the decline of whaling, headed to places like California and even New Zealand. At last the whale drags the boat o'er the sea, but tires of his efforts the lines to break free. Exhausted at last he floats in the sun, Sharp lances complete what the harpoons begun. We want to take a moment to thank our supporters for helping make these podcasts a reality during remote learning due to COVID-19. A special thank you to Craig Kafura, Derek Perkins, Tom Hurtweck, John Gilbert, Lena Srivastava, Jennifer Bonder, Nicholas Croce, Haley Newton, Emma Barrasso, Nusha Udin, Jean Yoon, Andrew Lieber, Judd Greenstein, Julie Lugton, and Yu Ming Lu. It's back to the island, will be a long row. Should darkness come down, then the lanterns will glow. High on the clifftops, the islanders stand and wait for the whalemen's return to the land. The history of whaling in Nantucket is pretty overwhelmed with depictions of white men who went out to sea and came back heroes. 
And while that isn't necessarily wrong, it erases the very real impacts that black sailors had on the survival of the industry. The hub of the whaling industry was founded in Massachusetts after all, a northern colony set up by white, buttoned-up Europeans. But in just a couple centuries, Nantucket transformed into a bastion of black history, one that most people don't know much about. The population of Nantucket became majority white after whaling died out. And today, remnants of the whaling industry remain in the nautical-themed houses and restaurants, in the ancestry of the locals and in the whaling museum, which proudly sits in the island's historic district. But when the island's African meeting house was vandalized in an act of racial hatred in 2018, the Boston Globe reported that it seemed many Nantucket residents didn't even know the landmark had existed. It's not that this history is necessarily hidden, either. The island has its own Black Heritage Trail, which takes tourists through various landmarks we've mentioned throughout this podcast. This issue is something larger altogether. Nantucket had become an island mostly dominated by white tourists, people who visit for a beach trip or weekend getaway rather than a history lesson. Many people unknowingly drive on streets like Angola Street or Douglas Way, a reference to the African nation and the famed abolitionists. But the reason Nantucket is even an option for vacationers ties back to the island's black community. Um, there was a lot of empty housing because so many people had left Nantucket. Azores Portuguese came from their island to this island, moved into the empty housing because no matter how economically depressed Nantucket might be, the Azores were even more so. Nantucketers had stayed behind and the Azorean families had come. They, they tried turning to farming, but they also offered accommodation to mainland visitors who would come to the island in the summer because the cities were not air conditioned. Cities were miserable in the summer and uh, visitors sought refuge in cool places like the New England coast, the Maine coast and Nantucket. I think it's also important to recognize the alternative future that could have unfolded here. A lot of small and interconnected worlds were created on this island, some of which died here as well. The whaling industry and the island were one and the same, and the loss of the island's unique culture is, I think, something to mourn. Many of the potential mementos of this alternative history either no longer exist or simply aren't recognized by the average person. I'm sad to say that this isn't a happy ending. Whaling was skewered and left to die after the rise of the oil industry. And so was this largely forgotten piece of history. If whaling had continued, the island's makeup would probably look a lot different today, making it a landmark for an entirely different reason. Frederick Douglass gave his first speech here, and some of the earliest anti-slavery texts were written here. Black people like Absalom Boston were given opportunities here that couldn't be found anywhere else in the country. I should say, I'm not here to glorify whaling or to say that this island was perfect, but I do think that this island deserves its own page in the history books. And I hope this podcast has allowed you to make a place for it in your heart. And I really hope that this history doesn't die with us. With backs nearly broke and blistered hands sore, the whalemen at last reached the land's rocky shore. The joy on friends' faces, a pleasure to see, as they welcomed them home with the prize of the sea. Row, my love, row, and bring back to me the king of the ocean, the prize of the sea. This episode of Final Examination was hosted by Trevor Stearns, 
It was edited by Ricky Cullen and Trevor Stearns. Ricky Cullen worked as the audio engineer and editor. It was written by Savannah Gillis, Rania Henriquez, and Quarkor Corti, who also researched the material used in this episode. It was produced by Roy Yoon. This podcast was created by students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as part of Political Science 390, a course on the politics of the end of the world led by Assistant Professor Paul Musgrave. It is licensed under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 4.0 international license.